0: Life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches but there's only one made crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour
1: Hi I'm Daniel founder of Pretty Litter Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter that's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code Spotify for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Smart Food Popcorn. Some decisions aren't the best, like skipping ahead in your favorite podcast. Think of all the banter you'll miss, the lore in the making. Luckily, Smartfood popcorn is a no-brainer. Deliciously tasty and available in a variety of fun flavors. It's a smart decision. Every time. Smartfood. Add smart. To learn more, visit smartfood.com. Hello, I'm Kellyanne Taylor and this is the Radio Times podcast. Every week I sit down with a celebrity guest from the world of TV or film to talk about their lives both on and off screen. To my fellow TV enthusiasts, I hope you enjoy listening. This week's guest is an actor I have always Always wanted to interview. He's been a staple of British television, a national treasure, a formidable talent. It is, of course, David Tennant. We talk about his first TV memory watching Doctor Who and witnessing John Pertwee turn into Tom Baker. We also talk about parental advice, why he ignored it, and how he feels about his own son becoming an actor.
0: Turns out he can do it. That's the terror. I think that's the terror as a parent, if you're especially if you are an actor and your kids want to become actors. And you kind of think, oh, OK, well, I was, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to actively encourage you, but I'm not going to stand in your way because that would be weird. And then when you see them act for the first time, you think, what their oh, shit? I mean, yeah. what, how will I cope with that? And how will I, do I tell them?
1: Plus, we talk about good omens, Christianity and why Michael Sheen isn't the yin to David's yang. Enjoy. David, welcome to the Radio Times podcast. Oh,
0: thank you for having me. I feel like I should have called you David Tennant. That felt very informal. Oh, please be informal. <laughs> It'd be very odd if you used my entire name.
1: I know. That's what I think. I think you don't call people in real life. You wouldn't say to me, oh, Kellyanne Taylor. You'd just say Kellyanne. So,
0: well, I, I would hope if I was invited to him and I wouldn't be so presumptuous, Kellyanne.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. Let's kick off with this conversation is going to be very kitchen sink. We'll go here, there and everywhere. Start with... The first question, which is always, what is the view from your sofa?
0: Oh, oh well, I'm in the middle of a press junket, so it's not my sofa. It's, the, it's, a, it's a Porsche London Hotel sofa. It's, a, it's some hotel room that, uh, that Amazon Prime have paid for. So it's, it's much nicer than uh, <laughs> what I might be looking at. Uh, I can see sort of, uh, well, I, I can see, what can I see? a coffee machine, a lot of bottles of Coke. Uh, I don't know if they're all for me and I can see well I guess what I'm looking at is a padded headboard a floral padded headboard for a bed that's been removed and a conference table has been put in its place None of this is normal That's where I am I'm in a I'm in the middle of a I'm in the middle of a press day in a London hotel room this is the slightly... It's, this is not, this is not, you see Kitchen Sink, this is not Kitchen Sink, none of this is relatable. No. I sound like a mental entitled lunatic actor. No, you don't.
1: When you are watching TV,
0: what do you enjoy watching? Good stuff. I mean, right now we have just finished Slow Horses season two. Oh, okay. Which is great. I just started watching it. It's Gary Oldman at his finest. Gary Oldman. Yeah, Gary Oldman's great. Jack Loudon's great. Uh, there's a lot. In fact, all the actors and are really well cast actors as well. I don't know who the casting director was, but they're very good. Some really interesting people doing really interesting work, and I, you know, and I'm one of those storylines you have to kind of go. Hang on, which was so? Which was that guy? Is that the guy with? Hang on, pause it, pause it, pause it for a minute. So that was the guy, the guy with the beard, or the other one? Oh, the other one. So does that? There's a lot of bit of that, which which you know I quite enjoy.
1: In your household, who controls the remote? The answer to this question, I am assuming, is not you. It actually is me.
0: I control the remote but this I control the remote because Georgia doesn't want the hassle of it. So I control the remote. Well, I mean I hold the remote and I press (laughs) the buttons. But it might be fair to say that Georgia controls it. Maybe that's the specific answer to your question.
1: I like it. Mm. When you are watching telly, what's your snack
0: and drink of choice? Well, it very much depends on the day of the week. A, a daytime is a bit more abstemious and health-conscious and probably less chocolate-based than a weekend. You might have a Friday night takeaway. You might follow that with a magnum. You might, but you wouldn't do that on a Monday to Thursday. I mean, I'm not a savage.
1: I love that. Weekend David Tennant lets his hair down. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, Oh, oh yeah. we love to see it. Yeah. Mm. When you're watching telly, do you have a preference over comedy, drama or are you like a mishmash?
0: I don't know that I have a singular preference. I just... If you strike on something that gets you, then that's the exciting thing, isn't it? But that could be anything. That could be from any genre. So I don't know that I have a single preference. I do quite like getting lost in a story. That is probably my favourite thing, when a bit of drama really grabs you and and you're intrigued and caught up in it and and, and bewitched by it. That's probably... Like something like Succession, you know, that was just when the writing and the acting and the world is just so perfectly realised. Something like that is is it's a real high, I think.
1: What's your first TV memory ever?
0: My first TV memory ever is Doctor Who. It was uh, a, a, it's very specific. It's, it, I remember watching John Pertwee turn into Tom Baker so I can date it. I mean, it's very, very weirdly specific, especially considering things that might have happened in my life since. But it's, yeah, I, that, I remember watching it and thinking, that's wild. man just turned into another man. What was that? <laughs> I remember that with Christopher Eccleston and you.
1: And I remember that whole storyline and then Billy Piper. That was my era of growing
0: up with television. You might be from slightly different generation. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, well, the, the Doctor keeps evolving, you know.
0: That's a wonderful thing of a Doctor Who. You've got, you've got multiple generations all having similar experiences. Exactly, yeah.
1: I think what's interesting is I've heard before the anecdote that you have about meeting Tom Baker mm. at a book signing yeah. and the full circle moment of those experiences and how with the power of hindsight you see how those events feel almost like a little tidbit from the universe to say one day you're going to make it. And I wondered for you as an actor who later became the Doctor, if you ever reflect on those moments and think what a little good omen that was.
0: It's so odd that that happened in the way that it did that it, I almost can't compute it. it, it it's, so, it's so utterly predictable the way that worked out and so fantastically unlikely uh, I mean, the odds against that being the case are so ludicrously small that I almost, if I think about it too much, it makes me feel a bit a little vertiginous. So, so, yeah, I mean, I, I do reflect on it, but I, I don't really know what to do with, 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 <laughs> with, with, with how that makes me uh, imagine the world works.
1: I know you've said before that in some respect, growing up and watching TV created that seed for you wanting to be an actor. But I also know that your father was a minister. Mm. And I was thinking about this in in terms of, there are actually quite a lot of similarities between the role of, a, or the skills of a minister and an actor, Oh, yeah. you know, being a good storyteller, the theatricality of captivating an audience. And I wonder if perhaps through osmosis, you picked up
0: some of those skills from early I i mean probably yeah because it is definitely there's an element of performance without a doubt in being in a pulpit and taking an audience with you as you say so i'm sure i did i mean hard to unpack exactly what one inherits what one picks up and and, and what is just sort of in the air i mean amongst my siblings it's i'm I, 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 I'm the only one who went into this profession. But then my sister's a teacher. That's got an element. I mean, that's a, there's a lot of that in being a minister. So, uh, yeah, I, it's very hard to unpick, isn't it, how how your parents and your upbringing influence you. My dad w- would often say that had, had he been from a slightly different background where there have been different options available, then acting is something that would have interested him. So I guess it was in there somewhere. My granny, my dad's mum, was a very keen uh, amateur performer in, in the, around Glasgow doing musical theater. And in her later years would, uh, took a little sort of concert party around old people's homes. I mean, she was older than a lot of the people she was performing to, but she would go and uh, sing songs and, and she, could, she could kick her height very, uh, very late in life. Uh, and she had a little sort of hamper full of her uh, her performance gear so uh, so there's definitely a bit of it in the family although not explicitly so perhaps
1: i also know you've said that your parents although supportive of your kind of ambitions to become an actor also gave you what you consider to be very good advice in in terms of saying it is good to have a backup plan it is good to perhaps pursue a career where you know you can always put food on the table and i wonder now as a parent who's you know, your son is in good omens, if you've had similar conversations with him?
0: I think you just want your children to be able to have a nice life. Uh, and yeah. acting is definitely able to provide you with a nice life, but it won't necessarily do so. You know, th- there isn't a there isn't a security you can depend upon. Um, so I think it's probably sensible to have some other options. And for my parents, there weren't precedents around us. We didn't know anyone who'd been an actor and managed to have a life. We didn't know anyone who'd been an actor. So they were right to kind of go, this sounds like quite a precarious profession. You might want to have a backup plan. Um, uh, and, And they were always trying to make sure that I when I went to drama school I did a course that meant I could maybe go into drama teaching at least, at least somewhere where you could guarantee a weekly wage packet which is what I think that was what they should have done really I mean I didn't really listen to them um, because that's the other thing about deciding to go into this kind of a profession, you sort of have to be pretty cavalier and single minded about it otherwise it, 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 it will sort of give up on you because it's you know you have to be able to put up with a bit of potential brutalization there's a lot of rejection and a lot uh, it's it's i think probably ty is in a slightly different position because obviously i'm an actor his mum's an actor his grandparents are actors he he's absolutely grown up surrounded by it um and to an extent that means it's it's it, it makes more sense for him he can see how it can work Um, but yeah, as a parent, you just, you just want your kids to be happy and acting can certainly make you happy. You you just want to protect them against the, the bit of it. It doesn't make you happy. The, the rejection and the, you know, the fact that you don't necessarily always earn a lot of money. Um, And, but so far he's doing great. So, and it turns out he can do it. That's the terror. I think that's the terror as a parent. If you're, especially if you are an actor and your kids want to become actors and you kind of think, oh, okay, well, I was, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to actively encourage you, but I'm not going to stand in your way because that would be weird. But uh, I just, and then when you see them act for the first time, you think, what if they're shit? I mean, what, what, how do I, how will I, how will I cope with that? And how will I, do I tell them? Anyway, luckily, Ty's really good and it just has a sort of natural confidence and ability and, and, and uh, that's been a huge, re- first of all, huge relief and then a matter of great pride, if I'm honest. I, 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 I love watching him work. I think he's really good at it. So. And, and it, it but it, it remains an unfair profession and just being good at it doesn't necessarily mean you'll be able to do it for the rest of your life, but I, I think he's got every chance. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com?
1: is such a beautiful thing about being that young, is you do have this naivety about the world that actually, I think, does protect you a little bit. You Watch think, you. well, if I want to, I, I can just try and I can do it. And when you moved to London and you were starting out, you, I know you did a lot of theatre. How did that fare against the reality of it? Was it, again, that excitement of just getting getting work? And did you feel your success came from the fact that you could
0: just pay your bills? oh god that's all i ever wanted to do i just wanted to be able to make a living at it i just wanted to be able to to do that instead of having to get another job uh and and yes so as long as i could keep doing that that was great and and i moved to london and it, yeah suddenly i worked at the young vic i mean that was seemed unspeakably glamorous to some boy from paisley um i mean i was doing a play set in paisley uh <laughs> so i was pretty good casting but uh but yeah, when I moved to London and just got a job, I just thought, this is brilliant. And, 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 and that's all I really aspired to. I mean, the truth is it's, you can just about get by as a single man in London, working in London theatre, uh, and that was 20 years ago. It's definitely harder. I mean, you know, the, the, it, it's difficult to work in a city like London on those, on on the kind of minimum wages that you you, you get in theatre now. That's, that's quite an ask and that's not getting any easier because those those wages haven't gone up in the last 20 years. Yeah. So it, it, if you want to have a family and buy a house and all that it probably isn't. That's that's a, a tough ask. But listen, at the time that's all I wanted to do and I and I yeah. for me living in a single room somewhere that was more than enough.
1: I do wonder off of the back of that, you know, I've got friends who are in theater and taking something to the fringe now is you know, it's always been expensive, yeah. but now the kind of money that you need to raise to get your yeah. play there is insane. And I've seen it a lot. You know, I really love going to the theatre and I have seen some really incredible productions over the years. And the most recent one I saw was A Streetcar Named Desire. Oh, yeah, right. Which was fantastic. But I've also seen that the kind of future of theatre or or perhaps the way to keep it alive or to get new audiences is also having some really big names. So I wonder what you reflect on that, because you're a stage actor who then became a screen actor, what that dynamic
0: is like. I mean, it's always been the case that that's how theatre has brought audiences in by having people that you might know from somewhere else or, or even famous theatre stars who then head a cast and that's why people go into and that uh, so that's I don't think that's new or necessarily a bad thing but it, it, it it's it's live theatre is expensive and it's increasingly expensive to run and therefore the ticket prices are increasingly expensive and that's that's a difficult thing to rationalize because obviously I would like to imagine that that's something that everyone should be allowed to enjoy. And and yet, when I'm in a show in the West End, I'm aware that there are tickets selling for ludicrous amounts of money. But they get sold, at which point you think, well, then what's the theatre management supposed to do? <laughs> you know, the, the, uh, if it's a commercial enterprise, it, it, should they be expected to be giving tickets away? But, you're, but the, the danger is you're sort of strangling the next... Generation of an audience coming through, and if we want these industries to be sustainable, because in this country, uh, I mean, it's true around the world, but it's very true in this country that what happens in the theatre, sponsors, promotes, feeds into what's happened, what's happened, what happens on our screens, you know, and it and people, you know, like Stephen Daldry, like Peter Morgan, they, they, like Jack Thorne, who who are the creators of our bigger TV and film uh, uh, successes, they they started in the theatre and they started in subsidised theatre. And and I, I think we're, as a nation, we sort of, we kind of acknowledge that and we kind of cherish it, but only just... There was a moment during the pandemic when a lot of theatres were in real, real trouble. Obviously, because theatres live theatre only works if hundreds of people can be in a room together. And that was the very opposite of what had to happen to fight the pandemic. And there was a moment where it, where it looked really, really grim. And then suddenly the government kind of went, OK, here's a billion and a half quid. And everyone went, oh, oh. And I think that that was sort of quite telling that there was an acknowledgement, there was an understanding that when push comes to shove, we can't let those industries die because they they do... They are important creatively, they are important artistically, but also they are just a sort of financial engine. The creative arts is one of our biggest exports, is one of the things that we do make money from as a country. And it starts in the rep theatres and it, and it feeds through the whole industry like that. So we do have to protect and we do have to look after it. Um, and we just, have to, it, 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 it would be nice if it didn't have to be a crisis that prompted a sort of... That prompted the, the the electric paddles to come out to just make sure this sort of corpse can lumber on. So, I, listen, I, I'm not I'm not proposing any significant answers. I just know that we have to look after the industry from from sort of the the bottom up because you know we we won't have we won't be making great telly and we won't be making Oscar winning movies if we're not if we if we don't still have a a, a thriving theatre scene.
1: Can we talk about some connections that you made early on in your career, which I guess, again, that kind of full circle moment. So for this, I'm specifically talking about um, meeting Russell T. Davis on Casanova. Oh, yeah. Again, one of our greatest writers. Yeah. And then obviously coming back to Doctor Who. So I wondered what the experience was like in that and now returning again this time for Doctor Who, how that's marked your life and and that role has left an impact on you.
0: When someone like Russell sort of goes, "Oh, I'd like you to be in my stuff." There's nothing more thrilling because, yeah, you know, it, because it all starts with the writing. It's all about the writers. If you don't, if if it's if you don't have the writing, you have nothing else. So, so. That's sort of those are the people you aspire to work with, you know. And and the idea that I was auditioning for something that Russell had written when I went out for Casanova was a thrill, T- to to get that job, to kind of get on the other side of that. And that's always been those those have always felt like the exciting moments. And that was the same when I, you know, and through Doctor Who, I, I got to work with Stephen Moffat, with Chris Chibnall, uh, um, and and then when someone like Neil Gaiman kind of comes along, you think this is yeah, this is you know. Getting to work on The Pillow Man, you know, you, you, you kind of know when a script sort of is fizzing, you kind of know you're in something special. So that's always, those have always been the, professionally, the connections that have probably meant most.
1: And great writing enables you to do great acting. Oh, of
0: course it does. It inspires you, yeah,
1: yeah. And let's come on to talk about Good Omens. So in terms of good writers, obviously when you started on the first series, Terry Pratchett had passed away. And I wondered, especially now for the second series, you've moved away from the original text. So I wonder if that, as an actor, you felt that responsibility, obviously you're working with Neil Gaiman, but what kind of element of responsibility that brought for you?
0: Well, I I sort of feel like because we've got Neil, we're kind of in terms of responsibility i just have to sort of do my job as best i can and and work with michael and try and make these characters sort of live but but we've got neil writing the scripts and neil is a direct line to terry and uh you know there are ideas in series two that that neil and terry discussed way back as a potential way forward for these characters there are there are more of those ideas that neil has still got in his back pocket um to potentially take the story even further, so uh, so it's not entirely adrift from the original source material, and indeed we've got fifty percent of the original writing team as our writing team. So I think there was a huge responsibility in season one because that book is so beloved mm. that it did feel precarious releasing that into, out into the world. Knowing that people will have very specific mental images of these characters that they have they have been living with and holding close to their bosom for many 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 years, so that was that was quite scary, but felt like it, broadly we got away with it and broadly we were accepted and encouraged. So I, I think coming back this time it's more exciting. Actually, it's more of an excitement because it's been a while. It's been 4 years since season 1 came out and and yet it doesn't feel like the enthusiasm has died uh, at all. It doesn't feel like it it feels like it's still the still it's still on a kind of uh on a simmer. The the idea that people are ready for a bit more. So the, uh, it's the fact that we we've we've got here and that we're about to deliver it and I think it's really fun it's really good and I'm really pleased with yeah. it. Yeah. So I'm really excited for people to see it.
1: I think the show always feels fun. And I think what's really nice is, especially when you have a genre like this, so, you know, you've seen it with Doctor Who, you see it with Good Omens, when they have such a cult following or like a fan following and a very strong relationship between material and fan. And in series one, Good Omens, there was lots of little kind of Easter eggs or references for audiences to find. Is there more of that in season two? But also, how much does speaking to the fan base,
0: stand at its core? There are definitely more references. and the Lots that I didn't even get. Michael would, every now and again, Michael would tap me on the shoulder and go, have you seen what's in this set? a reference <laughs> to a film. And I'd be like, I don't, I don't. Oh, I've got weird contact lenses and I can't really see very much. So you're just going to have to help me out. So there was a bit of that. Yeah, there's things in every, some of them are quite explicit and some of them are very subtle. Very subtle. But there's a lot of Easter eggs in Good Omens. Yeah, I, I, I that's I suppose things like that are there for an enthused fan base, aren't they? They don't they don't get in the way of enjoying the show as a as a more casual viewer. They're there as sort of extra content, extra texture for those who wish to do a deep dive and, and it may be that this show has some some uh people who do want to do a deep dive it's all there for you that that has been provided so it, it works on different levels but yes the, of course it's 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 humbling and uh exciting to be part of a show that means so much that people get so excited about well it's great to be to be excited to, about something about a show that's fun and full of joy and 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 it's uh you know it's a show about an angel and a demon finding common ground it's a show about two polar opposites yeah helping each other out making life easier i mean that if if, if there's a if there's a message for this fractious moment yeah a polarized world yeah then uh, then it's quite a nice place to live in that in the, in that sort of in in that world of um well, compromise makes it sound like a like a.
1: It's like commonality. Commonality isn't it? is fine. better than
0: com- than compromise. Yes.
1: Yeah, and I mean, from that perspective, I thought why I enjoyed it so much is we do live in a world of polarization. We live in a world which is it's becoming increasingly harder to have conversations because the middle ground is getting further and further yeah. away from both camps. Yeah. And I wonder, from this series, what you thought about good versus evil, right versus wrong and if this series taught you anything about the world that we live in. Even just the joy. I think what I love about this is that both you and Sheen find joy in living on Earth. Yeah. That's the point of it is that actually after all this disaster and all this chaos there, there is it's worth protecting.
0: Yes, they both come from very fundamentalist backgrounds, don't they? Uh, I mean, it doesn't probably get much more fundamentalist than Heaven and Hell and yet they they both sort of reject that because what they enjoy is living in between and living in the in the in the in the murkiness of humanity and uh, and that that's really where the joy of life is that uh, that it and I think that's that's what this show that's why it's connected with a, a certain group of people there's a there's just this kind of an inclusivity to the world view of good omens. Uh, there's a there's a, a, a joy in celebrating whoever you happen to be, and um, I think that's that's something I think that I think Neil is definitely very keen to communicate, and, and that's just a mess that's a message of kindness, and openness, and and I think that is why the tone of Good Omens is positive and and open and joyful and and fun.
1: There was some strange backlash about the religious element of it and mockery of religion, for example.
0: Yes, I don't think you, that it's interesting. You're right. There was a. There was a. I mean, there was a sort of couple of news stories about it, wasn't there? there was some there was one group that decided to complain, but it's not irreligious. Actually, it's it's quite no. It, it's quite. Um, it, it, it doesn't mock religion. It mocks mm. some of the attitudes that religion vomits forth. But but in terms of the the the, what religion is about and what I suppose specifically Christianity I mean it's broadly speaking it's a it's a sort of it's a Christian structure that this exists within. It doesn't mock that. It doesn't mock the idea that 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 there is there is good and evil and that we have to find a balance uh, and that we have to look after each other and that we have to, as you say, find that commonality. It's actually quite I mean, arguably quite pro-religion in many ways.
1: Yeah, because I I thought in terms of your own background, we spoke about at the beginning how your dad was a minister and I wondered what your take on your own personal relationship with religion, and and that doesn't mean you're a Christian or however you identify, but that kind of upbringing, how that seeped into this role.
0: Well, it's uh, yeah, I mean, my, my, my upbringing was specifically Church of Scotland Christian and that's not something that I necessarily... Follow now, but but my my parents were Christians in the proper sense of the word. I would say and I don't want to get controversial here, but they, you know they it, that was about values and that was about kindness, community, tolerance, understanding, about helping people out, about going the extra mile to be charitable. About it was about all the sort of things that are about community and about being. A member of society and, and just trying to walk walk a mile in each other in, in, in another man's shoes, as it were. Uh, that, I mean, that's the version of Christianity that I got from them. That I I may not call it Christianity anymore, but I certainly I think it's a way of living, and that's something that I'm forever grateful to them for. And and it because because that was their religion. I find it difficult to recognise some of the versions of religion that are a little bit more. Unforgiving, fundamentalist, unbending. Because that, to me, is that's not how I recognise the way I understood the teachings of the Bible. For instance, mm-hmm.
1: yeah, it's more of a moral compass yeah, as well. Yeah. Uh, just to finish up, there's a romance. It is, it's a love story,
0: right, between these two. That's not how Crowley would see it.
1: <laughs> no, I don't think he
0: would either. <laughs>
1: but. In that aspect, there's also this element. I don't think it necessarily has to be romantic love, although I know lots of fans are pushing for that. But there is a love between these two. That is, I think, what you find when you find someone who completes your soul, you know, and that could be a a friendship or... The yin to each other's yang. That's it. Yeah. So um, what do you think about that? And in terms of your relationship with Michael Sheen as well, this obviously created something of an incredible kind of professional partnership that, you know, we've seen in Staged and people are really, you know, investing in. How did that relationship between your characters impact your relationship with Sheen?
0: Well, I mean, we wouldn't have made Staged if we hadn't done Good Omens together. Uh, Because of that, we then went into a lockdown and the person that I found myself doing a show on Zoom with was the person that I'd spent many months making Good Omens with. So, So there's a very direct, pragmatic correlation there. And that, yeah, I guess... I don't know if Michael is the ying to my yang, or I'm the yang to his ying. Maybe we're both uh, ying. I don't know. Again, it's an analogy that's not going to stretch. But, uh, no, I mean, uh, it's been... It's certainly a professional relationship that I enjoy and that I hope we can continue going forward. In terms of what exactly the relationship between Crowley and Aziraphale is, I think they both see it very differently. And they both have... um, they both interpret it in different ways and they would certainly uh, have different ways of describing it objectively but I do think they help each other to understand each other and that the, the, the series is a sort of journey of them sort of coming ever closer through circumstance really. I'm sort of fudging the answer because I don't want to commit to anything. I think, I think what's important for viewers going into series two is that you were, you know, that relationship has been projected. Many people have projected many things onto what that relationship is, and I don't want to second guess that by defining it because I maybe seem to have some sort of uh, defining knowledge of what that is, and I don't know that I do. So I think, I think, enjoy this wonderful creation that Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett, uh, these two characters that they conjured forth, and just. Uh, it, it, there's a joy to them interacting that certainly is a joy to play and that hopefully is a joy to witness beyond that define it as you will
1: <laughs> leave it in the audience's hands exactly where all the best dramas do david thank you so much for your time that thank was you Kelly.
0: absolute pleasure thank you so much
1: If you enjoyed this episode, you might like to listen to my interview with Daniel Radcliffe, in which we discuss handling fame and learning the ropes from the greatest British cast of all time. Or my interview with Richard Armitage, in which he talks about feeling out of place in Hollywood and his fear of falling out of favour. Both episodes can be found by scrolling back through the Radio Times podcast feed. Thank you for listening to the Radio Times podcast with me, your host, Kellyanne Taylor. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, please do follow, rate and review wherever you get your podcast from. It helps other TV and film lovers find us. Until next Tuesday, happy viewing.